This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 326th episode, we have a bunch of news, including something that is hot off the presses, just came out of embargo today. In fact, we delayed the release of the episode just so we could cover it. Because if we released it at our usual 5 a.m. Pacific, it would be too early for the press release. (laughs) What a treat. Yeah. It's a Rabaki sword from Asia. Nice. Which is a first. Sauropods. Yeah. <laughs> we also have a comparison of fossil scanning techniques and plans for new museums in Africa. So all good news. And we've got our dinosaur of the day, Teratophonius. So I'm talking all about sauropods and you're talking about a theropod. Yes. The old switcheroo. Kind of. Well... A real switcheroo would be if I'm talking about an ankylosaur. That's true, yeah. (laughs) And in addition to that, we want to thank some of our patrons. This week, we want to thank Pippa Ceratops, Taya, Verociraptor, Saurian Brandy, Rohan, Dino Moe, Graham, Trent Carbajal, Morgan Eklove, and the Georges family. And also... I want to point out we're about 10 new patrons away from doing a Q&A live stream. Ooh, we're starting to get the hang of live streams, too. We are. We did our first Q&A live stream with Tara and Terry from Follow the Bones, which went really well. I was actually surprised how well it went because it's the first time we've tried to live stream something while like conferencing in somebody else. Yeah. But it, it worked without a hitch. I believed it would go well, and it did. Good job, Garrett. Thanks. And also, like, thank you to everyone who came in and asked questions. It was really great. Yes. So the one that we do in another 10 patrons will be just the two of us asking everybody's questions about I Know Dino or about us and dinosaurs or whatever questions people have. It's a little more open-ended than the one we just did. So if you want to help us get to that and also just join our growing, really fun community of dinosaur enthusiasts, then... Go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Dino. And also, Sabrina just quit her day job. So yes. now we're both doing this full time. So you can help us, you know, buy food <laughs> and things like that <laughs> by joining our Patreon. We really appreciate everybody who does. We do. So jumping into the news... Up first, as promised, is the first Rabakasaurid sauropod dinosaur from Asia. Woo-hoo. That's actually the title of the paper, pretty succinct. It was written by Alexander Averyanov and Hans-Dieter Suze and published in PLOS One. 
The new sauropod is from the Besekti Formation at Jarakuduk, Uzbekistan. I'm pretty sure it's pronounced Jarakuduk. It's spelled D-Z-H to start, mm. but I think that makes it basically J sound. Um, I'm not positive about that because I don't speak Uzbek and I couldn't find any pronunciation guide for that specific romanization. But I think that translates to the sort of Delta character in Cyrillic. And then in Russian, at least, that's pronounced like J. But I'm not sure about Uzbek. I did my best. <laughs> that actually took like an hour to piece together. But I really am trying to get these dinosaur names pronounced properly because... For a lot of people, this is the only time they're going to hear somebody say it. So I feel like I should try harder. Anyway, Jarakaduk. Jarakaduk, Uzbekistan. So that also gives you a guess at what the dinosaur name might be. <laughs> because of where it's from? Yes, exactly. It's actually named Jara Titanus. And it's only the second sauropod known from Jarakaduk. The other one is an unidentified titanosaur, and this one was originally lumped in with the unidentified titanosaur, which might be why they named it Jara Titanus, but Jara Titanus is not a titanosaur, which is annoying. Mm -hmm. I don't like it when dinosaurs get the wrong suffix like that. Was well, just thinking, yeah, because it's a rabachiosaurid. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know why titanus at the end they didn't explain it they just said they used titan as a quote pre-olympian god in ancient greek mythology mm, maybe it's large yeah but i mean so are a lot of other sauropods they don't put titanus at the end of them i don't know it's like when people put raptor at the end of things that aren't dromaeosaurids seems unnecessarily confusing mm. which is supposed to be the main thing you try to avoid when naming a dinosaur but in any event <laughs> Rant over. Yeah. Down from the soapbox. <laughs> yes. So the, the formation that Chara Titanus is from is better known for the Ankylosaur Besectopelta. There's also the small Tyrannosauroid Timurlengia. And then there's also some other smaller dinosaur finds and fish and crocodilians, mammals, and amphibians. So it's a pretty well-known area in general. We just didn't know anything about the sauropods other than unidentified titanosaur. And now they've pulled out one of those bones and used that bone to name Jara Titanus. Interestingly, Jara Titanus is a feminine genus. The authors emphasize that in the paper. Mm -hmm. So it's like ending in Sora rather than Saurus. I guess Jara is the feminine part. Yeah. Anytime that happens... There's always an emphasis in the paper, I think, because it's pretty rare. Yeah, and in English, if they were, if all the papers were written in, like, French or Spanish, mm -hmm. you could tell because in Spanish you would say L for something that's masculine and La for something that's feminine. But since in English everything's just the, <laughs> you can't tell if it's supposed to be masculine or feminine for other languages. Which means they could have named it Jarasora, which I think sounds nice. Mm. And it would be less confusing. That's because you don't like the Titanus part. Yes. And for the record, all of the Robachisaurids in the paper either end in Saurus or Sora. There's no Titanus in the mix. I guess we weren't off the soapbox yet. <laughs> <laughs> We're not. I still have one foot on it. <laughs> and the full name is Jara Titanus Kingai. And Kingai is, quote, in memory of our colleague and friend, Dr. Christopher King, 1943 to 2015, who did much work on the geology of Cretaceous strata in Central Asia. Oh, quote. that's nice. Yeah, I thought it was a nice little... Tribute? Yeah. 
So as we mentioned, it's a Rabaki sword. If you're not familiar with that group, it's in Diplodocoidea, so not in the Macronarians in the other group. And you know, a lot of these have the long tails like Diplodocus. Rabaki swords include the last known Diplodocoids, lasting well into the Cretaceous, actually into the late Cretaceous even. Yeah, good for them. Yeah, so they coexisted with Titanosaurs. Sauropods for the win. I guess. <laughs> Titanosaurus won, I think, mm. in general. But Robachisaurids did pretty well, too. Robachisaurids include the really cool dinosaurs, Nigerosaurus and Lavacatosaurus, which have all of their teeth in that flat line oh, in the yeah. front. <laughs> and apparently the tooth row in the front is actually wider than the rest of the skull. So they have like a big bulging mouth, but it's also very flat. It's, they're just fascinating looking. It sounds a little uncomfortable. Well, I mean, it depends what you're trying to eat. Clearly, they were trying to snip off a lot of stuff in like a very flat fashion. Mm -hmm. I think of them like lawnmower dinosaurs, like putting their mouth on the ground and just trying to get like every last little bit mm -hmm. of something. And they are usually presented with that sort of head down facial position. And they have relatively short necks for a sauropod. And given that their front legs are shorter than their hind legs, it does give them that sort of downward angle. Mm -hmm. And their neck is basically just long enough to like reach the ground at sort of a shallow angle. So it's pretty weird. I don't know what's going on with them. Nobody really has figured out exactly what they were eating. People usually presume it was probably like ferns or something to that effect that grows really low to the ground because there wasn't grass at the time. Right. But safe to assume they were filling some niche. Yeah, definitely. Something different than what a lot of other sauropods were doing with their more rounded snouts and different style teeth. Because these also had a dental battery like hadrosaurs. So it looked like literally like shearing something off, mm -hmm. which is why I always think of lawns. Because <laughs> if you were going to design a dinosaur as a lawnmower, it would probably look like one of these Robaki swords. It makes me want to go back and watch some Flintstones episodes to see which dinosaurs they picked for mowing their lawns. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't realize they had lawns on that show. I think so. It could have been some other creature, too, that mm -hmm. they, like, shoved into a box or something. I feel like they did a lot of that in that show. Oh, that's true. A lot of mistreatment of prehistoric life going on. Prehistoric animals that didn't actually coexist together. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a cartoon. I still like it. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> so Jara Titanus was one of the latest known Robachisaurids. It was from the middle to late Turonian, which puts it at 92 to 90 million years ago, which again puts it in the late Cretaceous. And before this paper was published, Wikipedia had Robachisaurids lasting from 150 to 93 million years ago, which I assume means that this would stretch it out at least one or three million years. So it is probably the most recent Robachisaurid, in addition to being the first ever known Robachisaurid from Asia. Unfortunately, it's only known from a single tail vertebra, likely the first caudal, in other words, the very base of the tail. Although it is nearly complete, there's lots of details of the articulation points on the front and the back of the centrum where it would connect to other vertebrae. There's also a lot of useful information in the ridges, including what they call wing-like transverse processes. 
processes. So basically, they're, I guess, sort of shaped like a hand. If you hold up your hand, sort of making like, what is this? Like a triangle shape when you put your hands together. Yeah, with like your thumbs making the shortest side of the triangle in front of you. That's basically what the wing-like thing looks like. So they're really swept back wings, kind of like a fighter jet wings Hmm. (laughs) on the side. And those face just like if you hold them out, your hands out in front of you like that. So they are perpendicular to the ground. So and perpendicular to where the tail goes. So that's sort of the wing-like processes. Although technically there's only one on the vertebra because the other one is broken off on the actual one. But since all dinosaurs and all vertebrates are symmetrical, (laughs) you only need half and you can guess what the other half looks like. They also say that the neural arch is relatively pneumatized or hollow. Although I was just reading a preprint of a paper, I think by Matt Wadel. It was on SVPOW and it was talking about how this pneumaticity in vertebrae is way more variable mm. than people like to think in sauropods. And sometimes they had an example of giraffe titan where like three vertebrae in a row and the first one doesn't have much of any pneumatization to speak of or mm-hmm. at least nothing really obvious. The second one is like crazy pneumatized hmm. and then the third one is back to not much. So maybe it's not as important as we thought. Yeah, exactly. There's like tons of individual variation and then even within an individual like sequential vertebrae can be quite a bit different. So maybe looking at the pneumatization is not the best. That's why I listed that as like the last of the unique features. The centrum is about 10 centimeters or four inches long and about 18 centimeters or seven inches tall. And the front of the centrum is slightly taller than it is wide by about one and a half centimeters. Whereas the back of the centrum is the opposite. It's slightly wider than it is tall by about a centimeter. So it sort of morphs in shape as it goes through the centrum. I'm not sure if it was squished during fossilization. In other words, it's a taphonomic thing. Or if it was like that while the animal was alive. They didn't really mention much about it. I'm not sure if this is really common or what. But just kind of interesting to me. In papers, they almost always talk about the size of the centrum. I think that makes for a better comparison between dinosaurs because that's the part that actually articulates and maybe gives you the best idea for comparing individuals because when you include these crazy things sticking off the vertebrae, it can really inflate the numbers Mm -hmm. on some dinosaurs, whereas others have less processes sticking off of them. So the centrum is central to comparing. I think so, yeah. But I like to use the neural spine and the other processes because that's how big it actually looks when you look at it as a layperson. And if you include that, it's about 44 centimeters or 17 inches tall and about 27 centimeters or 11 inches wide. Pretty sizable vertebrae, like dinner plate size, I guess. Hmm. (laughs) Bigger than a dinner plate, actually, 17 inches. Mm -hmm. It's pretty big. Serving plate size. Yeah, (laughs) serving tray maybe. But like I said, it's missing one of those wings. So with it, it would have been probably more like 33 centimeters or 13 inches wide. Hmm. They didn't say anything about the age in the paper, but they did say the neural arch, transverse process, and centrum are fused. So I assume it's an adult because everything's nice and stuck together. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That's what it means to be an adult. (laughs) (laughs) Getting stuck. (laughs) Things are sticking together. (laughs) Yep. The neural spines on the vertebrae look similar to European rabaki swords, especially the wing-like projections from the vertebra. 
which could mean the jar titanus derived from European relatives. In general, you might guess that because it's the most recent and the only one from Asia. So where would it come from? Probably Europe. And, you know, it had to come from somewhere since it's the most recent one. Phylogenetically, it came out in a subset group with four other Robachisaurids, including Nigerosaurus and Robachisaurus. Oh, so they're closely related. Yes, and it might show that it had that weird flat mouth, too, that I like so much. It, too, was a lawnmower. <laughs> it might have been. <laughs> or fern mower, maybe. Right. <laughs> and again, it might show that Robachisauridae didn't make it to Asia until... They said 90 to 130 million years ago. Not sure why they picked that time range. That's a good chunk of Robachisaurid's existence period. But they think it was likely after they were established in Europe. And since Europe and Asia were isolated for much of the Cretaceous, it's not too surprising that it would have taken a while for them to migrate. I imagine it'd be pretty risky going for a swim across a sea as a sauropod. It's a lot of tempting meat. But maybe they were strong swimmers. Yeah, not as strong of a swimmer as like a mosasaur. True. Or even something like a sarcosuchus, one of those big crocodilians or something. Go for a snack on a sauropod. Maybe it's one of those things like a storm happened and some newly hatched dinosaurs ended up on a log that floated. <laughs> it could be. There were periods of time where... The sea level was a little bit lower and there were land bridge connections between Asia and Europe. So that's what they guessed was when it got over there. But yeah, you're right. We don't know. And while we're talking about sauropods, we got another sauropod paper. Because why not? Yeah, good. <laughs> so it's by Dennis Kent and Lars Clemenson. And it's published in PNAS, which unfortunately is paywalled. But there's enough information in the abstract. I didn't even bother going past the paywall. So they point out that the earliest dinosaurs we know are from Gondwana, specifically Argentina and southern Brazil. We talk about that a lot. It's like 230 to 240 million years ago. They put it on the conservative side of it and saying about 230 million years ago. And by that time, there were both sauropodomorphs like Saturnalia and just lots of theropods. So I'm not even going to bother to name them. There's a lot of them <laughs> that were running around. However, the sauropodomorphs didn't show up in the northern hemisphere until about 215 million years ago, which doesn't sound like that big of a difference, 230 to 215, but it is 15 million years. That's a very long time mm -hmm. for them to not move a couple thousand miles. Must have been a nice habitat. Yes, I think it was. And then in addition to that, there might have been a not so nice habitat in between them and the northern hemisphere because, again, back then there was Pangaea. The authors put it as Pangaea was, quote, traversable in principle, end quote, mm. <laughs> because it's all connected. So, of course, like that's what we all learned in school. Mm -hmm. Everything's connected so the animals can go wherever. Right. But, but we don't know what the terrain was like. We know a little bit and we think there was a large desert belt around the equator, which obviously makes traversing not so practical. Mm -hmm. And it seems like that desert prevented dinosaurs from making it to the north, although maybe more so sauropodomorphs than anything else, because the authors point out that theropods showed up in the northern hemisphere earlier, although I was trying to figure out which theropods they were talking about, and it doesn't seem like there were that many theropods in the northern hemisphere either, 
before 215 million years ago. I'm guessing maybe Coelophysis might have been a few million years before the sauropodomorphs, but you get different accounts on the age of Coelophysoids in places like Ghost Ranch. Mm -hmm. Some places say 208 million years, some other places say 225. I'm not sure if the stratigraphy is that deep. I kind of doubt it, but... In any event, coelophysoids might have beat sauropodomorphs by a couple million years, but I think they were still probably limited by this desert, at least to some extent. Also, back in the middle or beginning of the late Triassic, when these dinosaurs were living, dinosaurs were not the dominant terrestrial fauna. There was a lot of stuff bigger than them that would be happy to eat them. Right, so it was even riskier making these moves. Exactly, yeah. It might have been really difficult for them to spread out and they might not have been even in a position to occupy any space in some of the niches. They might have, the places might have just been fully occupied by other animals and they couldn't successfully migrate there and get enough food and get established. The paper is really focusing on Greenland. They got a new date for an East Greenland formation. And just like back then, Greenland was similarly on the northeast of Canada. I think that's worth mentioning because a lot of other countries are in very different places than they were back then. Mm -hmm. But Greenland really hasn't moved much. It might have moved the least of any of the places, really. I guess Eurasia, everything kind of shifted north, so it shifted north too, but it hasn't moved all that much. This area had previously been dated around maybe up to 230 million years ago, but now they have a much more precise date and they put it at about 214 million years ago. And that's important because that's where Platyosaurus remains have been found. And that is basically one of the first sauropodomorphs, if not the first sauropodomorph known in the Northern Hemisphere. So it's important to know when it showed up because if it's one of the first ones, that'll tell you when sauropodomorphs made it across that desert potentially. And it turns out about 15 million years after they were already established in South America. And probably Africa, I should say, down in South Africa and Lesotho and Zimbabwe. Although I should point out that we could find more fossils narrowing that time period. It's possible we just haven't found a sauropodomorph that is around the same age as theropods. And maybe this isn't a sauropodomorph specific problem. For example, Schleitimia, <laughs> one of my favorite dinosaur names. Yep is not precisely dated and they give the range of something like 222 million years ago to 208 million years ago. So if it's on the earlier end of things, it could push this date earlier. Mm -hmm. Still wouldn't be as old as the South American finds. We'd have to find a new dinosaur somewhere else to get to that sort of record. Although I think it's likely that dinosaurs were limited by this desert because we think that early dinosaurs had soft-shelled eggs and we've talked in the past about how if you have soft to all the eggs, it, it limits your dispersal quite a bit because you need either a moist area or somewhere with compost where you can bury an egg or a beach or something where you can keep your egg from drying out. And a desert would be a really big problem for animals with soft-shelled eggs unless they stuck to the coast. But sticking to the coast might not have been the best option for a small dinosaur, mm -hmm. especially when there were these contemporary crocodilomorphs that liked being on coasts yep. that were much bigger and things like postosuchus, which were basically the largest terrestrial carnivores of the time. And then there's the additional 
difficulty of a sauropodomorph because they're slow and herbivorous, which makes crossing a desert problematic compared to something like maybe a small carnivore could find enough food to cross without as much problem, Mm -hmm. I guess. But yeah, being a big, slow herbivore that needs to drink a lot of water and eat a lot of plants yeah, (laughs) and crossing a desert don't seem like a great combination. Although, I mean, back then the sauropodomorphs were smaller and potentially faster. Some of the earliest ones like Saturnalia were bipedal. Right. And I think weren't even necessarily herbivorous. It could have been omnivorous. So yeah, just take what you get. Yeah. The authors think they have an explanation of how the sauropodomorphs eventually did make it across the desert. Basically 215 to 212 million years ago, there was a big drop in atmospheric carbon dioxide. And that might have reduced the size and or intensity of the desert barriers, allowing the sauropodomorphs to make it through. Sort of a connection to today, how carbon dioxide affects temperatures and aridification, things like that. It's interesting to think how all these animals are so intrepid and they're just waiting for the right opportunity and then they go for it. (laughs) Well, everything goes for it. Not everything succeeds. Mm -hmm. I think about how, well, I mean, humans obviously spread out everywhere we possibly can. But when we had North America and South America connect and there was a big I think it's called the Pan-American Interchange. Everything from South America that could went north and everything from North America that could went south. And it turned out that a lot of the stuff in South America, actually kind of like this, they were used to a more humid and warm environment and they had a tougher time going to the north than animals in the north had going to the south. Hmm. But some of them did, like terror birds, I think were from South America, went up to the north, but the big cats that were in North America wiped them out and went south into South America and wiped them out too. So yeah, it's it's anyone's guess who's going to win when these things combine. And I guess dinosaurs ended up winning and wiping out whatever kind of other dinosaur morphs and archosaurs and things that were dominate, maybe giant amphibians <laughs> dominating in other parts of the world before they made it there. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. 
head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And last but not least, I've got a paper about some different techniques for digitizing fossils, which is something that I think is super important. Yeah, makes it easier to access around the world. More people can study it. More people can find new things. And from my data hoarding perspective, Mm. I like that if the bone itself gets destroyed, you still have a very good record of it for future use, Mm -hmm. for comparisons and things. It's always better to have the actual bone, but some of these scanning technologies are really amazing and much better than just trying to work from a picture or something. Mm Mm-hmm. This paper was written by Veronica Diaz-Diaz and others and published in the Paleontological Association. They went through seven techniques, but that's a little bit misleading because five of them are photogrammetry using two different camera systems. Mm. Basically, they had a Canon 5DSR, which is a 50 megapixel full frame sensor camera with a fancy lens and a fancy ring flash which I'm guessing cost between three and $4,000, maybe a little bit more when the camera was brand new, but cameras declined rapidly in price. And I think this one's a couple years old, so you can get it cheaper than you used to be able to. The other one they used, apparently this was a Canon person who was working on it because they had a Canon 70D as well. That's a 20 megapixel camera. It's a smaller app C sensor, if you're familiar with it, which makes it cheaper. And it had a cheaper lens and a ring light rather than a ring flash, which would have made it sub $1,000. So a more accessible camera and the kind of camera that a lot of amateur photographers have. So something people might just have lying around in their house. You don't have to buy a specialized tool for the photogrammetry. So that's only two techniques worth. But to get five, they did a combination of walking around the fossil. They did that only with the cheap camera. And then they did two different versions of using the turntable with 10 versus 30 degree increments. And that's how you get your five different methods for photogrammetry. Then the two other techniques were both using structured light scanners. Those are really cool. You've probably seen them in like a sci-fi movie where someone's standing in front of a a light or a scanner and it projects a grid on them. Hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's sort of, it comes up in sci-fi stuff. I can picture it. It's it's really cool. I like it a lot. With these, I don't think you see the structured light itself. Maybe you can, but I don't know if you would notice it. It flashes. It doesn't stay fully on all the time. And they're rated, one of them, the Arctic Eva, is rated at 100 micrometers (laughs) of precision. So those lines are very close together. That one costs about $20,000. The other one's called the Arctic Space Spider, which is rated at 500 micrometers. Although the website says 50 micrometers, so I'm not sure if they had to change the setting for a larger specimen or what's going on there. 
but that one costs about $30,000. So these are much more expensive, obviously, than the even the expensive photogrammetry camera setup, but they look really cool. To compare the systems, they used two different fossils. They used, more relevant to us, a sauropod tail vertebra. Yeah. You really did talk about all sauropods this week. <laughs> yeah, and I was just talking about a sauropod tail vertebra too. This one was full of pneumatic cavities, so it's one of the more pneumatic varieties. Mm -hmm. And it had big processes sticking off it like you usually get. And of course, there's that canal running through the middle of the vertebra. So it's a pretty difficult thing to scan. It's got all sorts of bumps and holes, and it's really big. Yeah, so, so it's good for testing. Exactly, because they obviously could have picked anything. Also, there's convex and concave surfaces on the front and back and sides of the vertebra, which are really important, too. You need that detail for comparing to other dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of challenges. Exactly. So it's a, a really good one for comparison. I think the only thing that might be more complicated to scan is probably a skull, but maybe not the individual bones, because skulls, again, especially in dinosaurs, aren't necessarily all fused. So... Scanning just a maxilla or something is probably easier than scanning this big, crazy vertebra. They also tested it on a turtle in a flat slab of rock, which appears to be crushed. Just say it. It's interesting. Why? How does this come up so often? It always ends up being a sauropod versus a turtle. I don't get it. And literally, they picked two fossils <laughs> out of all of paleontology, and they picked a sauropod vertebra and what looks like a crushed turtle. <laughs> <laughs> okay, these two have no connection. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't know. There might be a reason. They might be sending us a message subtly mm. through this article, knowing that we would be interested in digitizing fossils. The turtle did something to the sauropod. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt they were even from the same time period, but yeah, yeah. And they, they mentioned that that's a useful one because a lot of times we do look at fossils that are still like slightly embedded in rock. And they mentioned that it's a useful way to digitize fossils because if you're doing preparation work, you can take scans during the preparation mm -hmm. like they're doing with the awesome Utah Raptor block mm -hmm. because there's so much information and they're worried about losing some detail about how a bone was situated or maybe I guess in a worst case scenario might prepare something away accidentally or damage something. So you scan it all the time, and then it's the ultimate in data hoarding. It's an infinite number of scans you could do at different times. Is it hoarding if it's useful? Yeah. Okay. Because to a data hoarder, every piece of data is useful. Mm. Like how I have like 10 different versions of all of our podcasts saved. They all could be useful. I you guess. You don't know. <laughs> but anyway, the real purpose of the paper was to compare the seven techniques and which one made the best models of the vertebra and the turtle. But I was mostly looking at the vertebra because that's what's important. And to do that, what they did was they digitally compared the models for accuracy and basically the individual measurements and how close they were to each other. So how much variability there was, say, in the model shape and the different points on the model like if there were big bumps that got captured in some but didn't get captured in others and stuff like that. But they did it all statistically. So they compared all of the points on all of the models. Wow. So that you could get an actual answer of this one is the most precise digital model. Amazingly, basically all seven of them 
created what they called accurate 3D models. Oh, they were nice. all great. Yeah. So you've got options. You do. And most of the measurements were within one millimeter of each other. Wow. Again, the vertebra is 290 millimeters or a foot tall and has all sorts of different shapes and bulges and holes in it. So the fact that almost every point on it was within a millimeter on all of the models is pretty amazing. But they did say photogrammetry was the best. I'm not that surprised. Why? It's, it's so much cheaper. It's like a tenth of the cost. You'd think it, maybe it wouldn't be as good. Maybe it's because I hear about photogrammetry all the time. That's a good point, yes. <laughs> so since everybody's using it and it's sort of the industry standard, they might know something we don't know. Mm. That's true. They described photogrammetry as producing, quote, higher quality meshes than current structured light 3D scanners, end quote. So I guess there is a potential for 3D light, for structured light scanners to improve because they said current mm -hmm. structured light scanners, and they only looked at one brand. They cited some other articles that looked at other brands, so they think that it's a, a pretty robust analysis. They did find that the Arctic scanners had less triangle errors, but they did have more holes in what are called sewing errors. So basically, when you take a bunch of pictures in a row, you stitch them together, and then when they get stitched improperly, you mm. get a sewing error. I see. Which can be difficult to tell that's an error when you're looking at a fossil. Exactly. Especially if you're not that familiar with the fossil. Yeah. So technically, it might look a little bit better when you first scan it, but you might not know what you're missing mm -hmm. or what is crazy about it. Some of them had like these really weird triangles because it's they're just made of nothing but triangles, mm -hmm. just millions of triangles, basically. And that can be an issue, too, especially when it comes to, like, what's the one diagnostic feature of this particular bone? Yeah, yeah, you want it to be as precise as possible, that's for sure. Most interesting to me was that the best results came from the walk-around method with the cheaper camera. Mm. And I'm sure the authors were kicking themselves afterwards for not doing the walk-around method with the more expensive camera. <laughs> Because mm -hmm. that was the one method that they only used the one camera on. And they ended up choosing the resulting model as their quote-unquote cyber type. <laughs> so like neotype or lectotype or... Holotype. Holotype, yeah. Yeah. I think that's what they're going for. I googled cyber type and all I could find was a portmanteau of internet and stereotype, which is a totally different thing. Uh, yeah, I don't think that's what they meant. <laughs> no. So, yeah, I, I assume it's analogous for a digital holotype because they propose that a cyber type could be updated with one of equal or higher quality and that previous cyber types should never be deleted so that you have a record of how it changed over time. Mm -hmm. Good data hoarding practices there. Never delete anything. <laughs> Keep it forever. <laughs> I feel like you're using this to justify something. <laughs> My data hoarding, yeah. <laughs> I need to buy another hard drive, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so the cyber type being from the cheaper camera, I wonder if they had used the more expensive camera, if they would have come up with a better model and wanted to keep that instead. But it really shows that you don't need really high-end gear in order to produce pretty excellent results. I mean, within a millimeter of accuracy, and it's really pretty. Mm -hmm. When you do photogrammetry, you end up with not only the mesh, you know, like the shape of it, but you also have the texture on top of it because you can put the images on top of it. So if it looks on a computer screen, you know, you can rotate it around and see basically the exact thing that you were taking pictures of. The authors did point out, though, 
that there are some benefits to the 3D light scanners. They say they might be a better option for inexperienced users because it's so automated. Mm. Basically, you just hold this one device that looks sort of like holding an iron, I guess is the best comparison, but if there were lenses on the bottom of the iron and you walk around the thing that you want to take pictures of, they usually use turntables. I wonder if that's at least they do in their demo videos on their website. That might be why they decided to use turntables for the photogrammetry option to sort of give a one-to-one -one comparison. And then you scan all over it. It's pretty quick because it can take, I think one of them takes 16 frames a second or something, almost like video camera speed. The other one was a little slower at like six, but still pretty quick. So it doesn't take too many seconds to go around the thing you want to scan, just pointing this device at it, and then you're done. Although, if you want the best model, they recommend doing it six times, <laughs> and then the software compares the six variants of it and tries to automatically eliminate some of the weird errors. Mm -hmm. So that could be a good option if you're unfamiliar with the process. Although, I would argue, in paleontology especially, it can be hard to come by dollars, and $20,000 for the cheaper scanner, it might be worth learning the software of photogrammetry. Or you could hire a tech-savvy college student for a summer and get half of your stuff digitized for the same price as just buying the scanner. <laughs> That's what I would opt for personally. And the authors did say they do recommend doing multiple scans in order to get a model that's high enough quality to be a cyber type when you're using the structured light scanner, not when you're doing a, a photogrammetry scan. At least six, right? I th they thought six, you might not necessarily need six, but definitely at least three, I think, three or four. Mm. The photogrammetry models, another downside of them is that they require more computer processing time after scanning, but they had a laptop with, I think it was uh, NVIDIA 965M, which is not at all like the latest and greatest graphics card. I think that's like a $100 graphics card, basically. If you had any standard gaming computer, either a desktop or a laptop, it would be a lot more powerful. And this one was capable of doing everything they needed to do. So I don't really think in this day and age, the computing power is that much of a limitation. We just have so much power everywhere in all our devices that I think that's probably fine. But maybe the biggest benefit to using the photogrammetry method is that it's so much more flexible. So since the walking around method worked so well, that means you don't need a turntable like you might for the structured light scanner. You also don't even need a tripod. And as a result, it's pretty easy to use in the field because you can just take a camera with you basically, mm -hmm. take picture, a bunch of pictures of the thing from different angles, and then later on, put it through your computer and end up with a digital model. It's pretty amazing. It is. The authors do recommend using a ring flash because they got better results, they think, with that. Very accurate scale bars so that the computer can process it better. And colorful fabrics for masking. In other words, like a green screen. So if you have a hole through the thing, you can put the green screen behind it and it makes it easier for the computer to know to ignore that rather than trying to figure out what part of the hole is picking up pictures of the background and what part of it is, you know, empty space. It almost sounds like you're making a TikTok video. <laughs> That's just because you make TikTok videos. <laughs> Green screen, your ring flash. Oh, yeah, the camera. That's true. Yeah. But you don't need a tripod for this. Mm, okay. So in some ways, it might be easier than making a TikTok video. <laughs> <laughs> I also think one benefit to photogrammetry, they didn't mention it in the paper, 
but it seems intuitive that it should scale down better because if you switch to a macro lens, you're going to get a much higher resolution image of a small specimen, whereas the structured light scanners have a predefined scale. You know, they tell you they're accurate at 50 micrometers or 500 micrometers or something. So if your fossil is only 1,000 micrometers across, it's not going to be able to give you any scan worth anything. But if you have a really high power macro lens, I'm sure you could. So that's another thing to keep in mind. And the examples on the website, Artex website, are all large objects. They're like transmissions of cars and like engine blocks and stuff seems to be the main use of their technology. They talk about reverse engineering, so maybe they're scanning other people's stuff. Mm. I guess there's a lot of uses for it. I think structured light scanners are amazing. They're really cool. But at this point, at least for paleontology, looks like photogrammetry is probably the way to go. As a, an aside, because I was thinking a lot about cyber types, the authors don't mention it, but I expect phylogenetics might sort of start leaning into these cyber types in the near future and relying less on the huge character matrices that just are lots of qualitative comments like, does it have this bump? Does it not have that bump? Mm -hmm. You just plop all of the actual models. Right. Then you can aggregate all the data that's available versus now you kind of choose which characteristics or which matrices to use. Yes. And it requires, some of the matrices do have values like length and width and things like that, but it depends on who's measuring it. A lot of people we've talked to have pointed out that some people measure the length differently. Mm -hmm. So really when you're doing one of these big phylogenetic studies, you want to go and see all the bones and measure them yourself mm -hmm. if you can, because then you can be more confident that you're doing it the same way and considering the same bumps as different, because sometimes they have like small, medium, large too. What is small, medium, large? But if you can use cyber types, you don't have to worry about any of that. Yeah. It can just automatically look at all the lengths and be completely consistent. Yeah, the consistency is the key because in a lot of studies, especially phylogenetic studies, they get different answers sometimes based mm -hmm. on which data sets they're using. And a lot of the argument comes down to the matrices. Mm -hmm. They'll say like, no, that doesn't count as X feature you know, that's really just individual variation or that's not relevant in this case and things like that. But this should make it a lot more reproducible if we can get everybody to make cyber types of everything, which is kind of a big ask, but <laughs> it would be awesome. In other dinosaur news, there were fossilized footprints found in Portugal. Mahu. Yeah, they're from 129 million years ago. They have tracks from sauropods, theropods, ornithopods, and they show they come from, quote, shallow marine environments, lagoons, and estuaries. So there's not too many details yet about the tracks, but there is a team studying them, so they'll probably publish more later. Yeah, that makes me think there's probably quite a few tracks if they've got that many different animals. Mm -hmm. In museum news, in Niger, there's plans to build two museums to house dinosaur fossils. Nice. Yeah. It's good. There's local scientists. They're working with Paul Serino, who's gone on many expeditions in the area. And these new museums are going to house the fossils that he's found, which are currently in his lab in Chicago. This project is called Niger Heritage. Without a space. Yes. And things are on hold right now with the pandemic. So they do have 20 tons of fossils that are currently in the middle of the Sahara Desert. That is a lot of fossils. Yeah. They have them in the middle of the Sahara Desert? Yes. It's just like fossils that 
they've been excavating, but then things are on hold, so. Oh, they haven't been excavated yet. They're I was imagining waiting. them being like stored in the Sahara Desert, like how they store planes in the Arizona desert. Oh, no, it's not like that. <laughs> we don't have a place for them, but the desert is a, you know, it's not going to get moist and ruin the fossils, so we'll right. just leave them in the desert. <laughs> no, no, it, it's actually not great to be out there because then the exposure could wear them down. Oh, I suppose sand, yeah. People might come across them and not leave them, <laughs> so... Anyway, in Niger, the first dinosaur fossils were found in the 1960s when there were prospectors from France digging for uranium. And then the paleontologist Philippe Taquet confirmed it was a dinosaur. I never knew that was why they found dinosaurs in Niger. That's interesting. Yeah, same. There were no laws in Niger against taking fossils out of the country until the 1980s. So there are now fossils from that country in the U.S., France, Italy, and the U.K. And... Tekhet returned the fossils to Niger after he studied them, and those ones are now in wooden crates at the National Museum. The fossils that Serino and his team found, they found when they were fossil hunting in 2018 and 2019, and in addition to dinosaurs, they also found mammals and humans, obviously spanning different periods of time. <laughs> yeah. And the dinosaur species, they found 11 dinosaur species, but none have been peer-reviewed yet. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. So expect a lot coming out. Soon, well, I don't know how soon. Hopefully soon. So they've they've covered their fossils, you know, in the middle of the desert. They're hoping they'll be safe until they can return. And so far it's been so good, but there's a lot of delays because of the pandemic. But there still seems to be a lot of enthusiasm for these museums, which is really good. Yeah, that's great. I, I want a lot more museums in Africa. There are almost none right now. I think there's, you could probably count them on one hand, the amount of museums that are capable of housing and displaying dinosaur fossils. Yep, natural history museums specifically. Yes, I should say capable and interested in mm. <laughs> displaying dinosaur fossils. And then obviously that gives a great place for people like paleontologists from the country and other countries to collaborate and work on the dinosaur fossils and store them and all that stuff. So that is very good news. I wonder if the fossils that are stored in other countries might get repatriated too. After they have, especially if they're doing two separate museums. Yeah, it's possible. See, I'm looking forward to hearing about the museums being built and also those 11 dinosaur species. Yeah. In other museum news, at the Hokkaido Museum in Japan, you can see the Hokkaido Dinosaurs exhibition from now until March 14th. I don't think I can, unfortunately. Okay, if you're in Japan, in Hokkaido. <laughs> I'm not. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> This is for people who can do it. <laughs> anyway, they have fossils from museums throughout Hokkaido, and that includes Kamuisaurus and Hadrosaurus found in Obira Town. You do have to make reservations in advance online. I know, Garrett, you can't do it. I mean, I could make reservations in advance. But, but you wouldn't show up. Yeah. yeah, that would be a waste of a reservation. <laughs> Anybody can take reservations. It's the keeping reservations. Yes. <laughs> that sounds cool though I like a good local dinosaur exhibit well putting myself in your shoes it's not local it is for the people in Hokkaido exactly <laughs> <laughs> and in museum news that's closer to us but still a little too far for us to actually go right now 
got an update on the Denver Museum of Nature and Science that in addition to their Sue the T-Rex exhibit, they also will have Tiny, their Ceratopsian, on display. Apparently it's a replica of Tiny, not the OG Tiny, Mm. just in case. I mean, I guess Sue is also, so. Yes. And what's interesting about Tiny is Tiny's considered to be a Taurosaurus. Whoa! Based on the frill. Tiny Taurosaurus? (laughs) Yeah. Interesting. (laughs) Tiny was found in 2017 in Thornton. It took him a few weeks to excavate, and Tiny got its name from some students nearby at Bratner Elementary. I'd like to hear what this means for the Taurosaurus-Triceratops debate, given that Taurosaurus is supposed to be the biggest form of Triceratops, according to some people. Mm. If there's a tiny version of Taurosaurus, (laughs) that's going to mix things up. I don't think Tiny's actually tiny. It looked small to me in the video. I think it's called Tiny because it's small for a Taurosaurus. Oh, that makes sense. (laughs) I wasn't just making a joke about Tiny and Taurosaurus (laughs) both starting with T the whole time. (laughs) Okay, I really thought you were. (laughs) I meant that, yeah, it's Tiny for a Taurosaurus and therefore could be a Triceratops, according to some people, or could settle potentially the Taurosaurus versus Triceratops debate. Yeah. In favor of Taurosaurus. Interesting to think about. Well, I guess we'll wait and see how that unfolds. In Rockford, Illinois, the reopening of the Burpee Museum has been delayed. It was supposed to open again on February 8th, but now they're hoping to reopen in two days from now, February 26th. And that's because a pipe burst and did a bunch of damage. It flooded the lobby and the gift shop and the visitor services center and some of the museum collections. Oh, no. Yeah. At first when I saw this, I thought that it was not in Illinois because Illinois regularly gets cold temperatures. But recently in the U.S., we had freezing temperatures all the way down to Texas Mm -hmm. that was causing a lot of burst pipes. And I know that affected some of our listeners, but I think everybody's okay that we know at least. So we're happy to hear that. But I guess... Even the cold temperatures in Illinois caused problems. Yeah, I don't think it was related to the same storm. Yeah, I think you're right, because you said it affected early February, and this was like mid-February. Mm-hmm. Luckily for the museum, the fire department and the burpee staff were able to save a lot from being damaged too badly, which is why they're able to, or they're hoping to reopen just a couple weeks later than they were supposed to. And happier news... There's a four-year-old who has set two records for naming 71 dinosaurs in under a minute. Oh, man. That's more than one a second. Yeah. Set the record for the UK World Book of Records and India's Limca Book of Records. But not the Irish Book of Records, the famous one. The Guinness Book of World Records. (laughs) (laughs) I can't find what the Guinness Book of Records record is for this. They might not have one. But there is an article from not that long ago, last October, of a six-year-old who set four records for identifying dinosaurs. And the six-year-old could identify over 100 species of dinosaurs and said 41 in one minute. Well, 71 is a lot more than 41. It also depends on what your record is. Is it the youngest? Is it the most Is it the most and youngest by some sort of weighting factor? (laughs) Well, I think the six-year-old might have paved the way for the four-year-old with these records. 
because the six-year-old's father is the one who approached the Limka Book of Records. They didn't have a category for kids below 12 years old at the time. Oh, kids below 12. Because I was thinking I could beat that, but I'm not below 12. No, so you're I guess I'm not quite eligible. a bit above 12. <laughs> if I were these kids, I wonder which, I, I would like to see which dinosaurs they picked. Because I would go with all monosyllabic ones mm. if I could, you know, go through like E and like all those really like short ones. Because mm -hmm. if you're trying to say like Parasaurolophus, right. you're wasting time. I guess. Unless you say it fast enough. Yeah, but it's faster to go through the monosyllabic ones. See, I'm wondering if there will be a Guinness world record for this at some point, and they just haven't established the criteria yet. Yeah. I got to go for it if they ever do. I think you have to pay, at least with Guinness Book of World Records, I think you have to pay like a fee in order to get the record. But I don't know about these other record books. Maybe not. With kids, maybe they, they waive the fee or something. I have no idea how it works. There's a video of the four-year-old at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History just like pointing to pictures of dinosaurs and naming them. Oh, uh, like a flashcard version of it. Kind That'd of. I don't, well, I don't know if that's how he set the record, but anyway, it's very cute. And then last, I just want to thank one of our listeners um, who's on our Discord and Patreon because they pointed out to us that Massachusetts does not yet officially have a state dinosaur, which is what we said in a previous episode. So the legislation has been introduced, but it hasn't been voted on yet. So it's not official official. So the vote that was for which state dinosaur, or which dinosaur should be the state dinosaur, that was for which one should be on the bill? Yeah. Gotcha. That was what the popular vote was for. And that's what we talked about. And that's where people voted for Podokosaurus. Gotcha. So we'll update when it becomes actually official. Yeah, that's a good choice. Unlike the Washington State Dinosaur. Here we go again. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Teratophonius, which was a request from Fran via our Patreon and Discord. So thanks. Teratophonius was a tyrannosaurid that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Utah in the U.S. It was carnivorous. It looks like this typical ferocious theropod tyrannosaur type. You know, it's got the sharp teeth and proportionally short arms. The D-shaped teeth, as they say. The holotype of Teratophonius was originally estimated to be about 20 feet or 6 meters long and weigh 1,470 pounds or 667 kilograms. And then in 2016, Molina Perez and Laramendi estimated it to be 21 feet or 6.4 meters long. 
And then Gregory Paul estimated it to be 26 feet or 8 meters long. It's been growing. Yeah. So Teratophonius looks different from more northern tyrannosaurs. It's possible there was a barrier, maybe a sea barrier, that kept dinosaurs separate in the north and the south, and they evolved in different ways. We've talked about these barriers actually earlier in this episode. Yeah, there's like the Laramidia barrier that kept it on that western side of the interior seaway. But then different people argue whether or not there was actually a barrier or not within Laramidia. We've seen that go both ways quite a few times recently. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's, that's still a little controversial, but it might have happened. So compared to Albertosaurus, Teratophonius had a deeper skull and it was shorter proportionally between the tip of the snout and the front of the eye socket, specifically the lacrimal bone of the antorbital fenestra. And that could mean that it had stronger jaw muscles and that would have meant it had a strong bite force. The type and only species is Teratophonius curiae. The genus name means monstrous murderer. Wow. Yeah, it's quite a name. <laughs> that is ferocious. <laughs> and the species name, you might be able to guess, is in honor of paleontologist Phil Curry. It was named in 2011 by Thomas Carr and others, and they found an incomplete skull and postcranial skeleton that was found in the Kaiparowitz Formation. The holotype is BYU-8120, and there are two other specimens that have been referred to Teratophonius. The holotype fossils were originally thought to be from four different individuals, and then later was thought to be probably from one individual, a subadult. There was a specimen found in 2017 in Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument, and that one was airlifted to the Natural History Museum of Utah on October 15th of 2017. Pretty sure we talked about it at the time. It's always cool to hear about dinosaurs getting airlifted. Yeah. Yes, it's often necessary because they can be in some pretty remote spots. Mm-hmm. So that airlifted specimen was found in 2015 when Alan Titus was prospecting for fossils. And it turned out to be this articulated, nearly complete skeleton, maybe 80% complete. And that includes the skull and most of the body. It's only missing the back part of the tail and a few toes. Wow, that's awesome. What's also unclear about the arms. But yeah, really cool. So it was found in 2015 and then excavated in 2017, Mm -hmm. it sounds like? Okay. So this airlifted specimen was in plaster and then lifted in pieces, and the largest piece weighed about one ton. It's a juvenile specimen, and it was probably buried in a river channel or in a flooding event. And it's estimated to be 17 to 20 feet or 5 to 6 meters long. Another juvenile, huh? Yeah. It took the team and volunteers about two to 3,000 hours to excavate this site, and it's probably going to take them at least 10,000 hours to prepare the specimen. Sounds about right. Yeah. (laughs) It's a lot of work. So this juvenile specimen that was airlifted, it's being prepared and studied at the Natural History Museum of Utah, and they're going to look at the growth patterns, how Teratophonius moved, how fast it ran, and how it used its jaws. I hope they have the arms. The arms... And the arm size is one of the most interesting parts of Tyrannosaurus, especially because this one, I think, is only about 10 million years before T-Rex. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, you want to know how T-Rex-ish it looks yeah, at true. that point. Not necessarily true that this one evolved into T-Rex, but right, right. it still could be interesting. We already know it had the deeper skull. Mm-hmm. So other animals that lived around the same time and place as Teratophonius. Included hadrosaurs, ceratopsians, mammals, turtles, 
crocodilians like Dinosuchus, lizards, insects, snails, clams, fish, and amphibians. Must have been near the coast. Yes. And our fun fact of the day is that during part of the late Cretaceous, Asia and Europe were separated by an ocean just like North America. Well. I mentioned this a little bit with Jara Titanus earlier, but I wanted to go into a little more detail. So sea level has varied quite a bit over the course of even just the Mesozoic. So even saying that the Western Interior Seaway separated North America during the Cretaceous is a huge oversimplification. <laughs> it only did for part of the Cretaceous and really part of the late Cretaceous, like the middle part of the late Cretaceous mostly mm. was when it was the highest. I think like 75 million years ago roughly was when it was at the highest. But again, there's still a lot of work being done on this and it's kind of hard to estimate at times. But I, I think that's roughly when it was at the highest. So in North America, as a quick reminder, Laramidia was everything on the west part of North America. And that was basically, if you drew a line with Montana in the middle, Mexico City at the southern end, and then the Arctic Ocean uh, to the north of that line in, I think, the Northwest Territories, maybe Yukon, because it was situated slightly differently back then. That would be the eastern end of Laramidia. So from that line to the west is Laramidia. So it includes British Columbia, part of Alberta and Yukon, and Alaska, and then, you know, the western end of Montana and all the western U.S. states, and then part of western Mexico, but not Baja California, because that's too low. That would have been underwater. So that's Laramidia. Then basically Texas up through the Dakotas and all of central Canada all the way up to the Arctic Ocean, was underwater in the Western Interior Seaway. Wow. Yeah, pretty wide seaway. Then Appalachia was on the eastern side of North America. That was basically everything to the east of Dakotas, Texas, and Manitoba. Hmm. But again, all of the low-lying states, especially in the United States, were underwater, like Florida, Mississippi, Louisiana, chunk of the Carolinas probably a bunch of the rest of the coast was underwater. So Appalachia in the east, Laramidia in the west. And then as a side fun fact, at sea level's highest, which was again roughly 75 million years ago, the area that is mostly Manitoba today turned into what's called the Hudson Seaway, which connected the Hudson Bay to the Western Interior Seaway. And it temporarily separated off most of Nunavut onto its own island. <laughs> so it was isolated from the rest of Appalachia for a little while. Hmm. So it was really three big chunks. And at this point, I think Greenland had separated from Nunavut because Greenland used to be even closer. I didn't realize how close Greenland is to Canada right now, but it is still really close. Mm -hmm. Now on the Asia and Europe side of things, they were separated by what's called the Turgay Strait also known as the Turgay Sea or sometimes the West Siberian Sea. I kind of like West Siberian Sea because it gives the same sort of feeling as the Western Interior Seaway. Mm -hmm. And it tells you where it is. So very roughly, it's the meridian at the Caspian Sea, basically ran north-northeast from the Caspian Sea through Western Kazakhstan and Western Siberia. In other words, I think east of the Ural Mountains, which is the conventional boundary between Europe and Asia. So I think that's kind of interesting that dinosaurs were more so living in a separated Asia and Europe, whereas now it's just like 
it's Eurasia. And it, really, it's Afro-Eurasia because they're all connected. Hmm. And anything that we say about the differences between them is usually more like sociopolitical than it is about actual animals in the areas. Whereas back then, there was literally an ocean dividing <laughs> Europe and Asia. It's pretty cool. For the record, Iran, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan might have just been considered part of the Tethys seafloor because just like Florida and Mississippi and stuff, they were low enough at the time that they were just kind of underwater. They weren't really in a seaway. They were just kind of seafloor. Hmm. Also, the Arabian Peninsula was still like a thousand miles away connected to Africa. So they weren't anywhere near Eurasia really at that point. Since the West Siberian Sea ran through Western Kazakhstan and Russia, it's probably not a surprise that Turgay is a river in Kazakhstan. Mm -hmm. So that's what the Turgay Sea is named after, this river valley that's still there today. And also, sometimes the water that separated Europe into islands is also called the Turgay Sea. So depending who you ask, like the Western Siberian Sea might not be as good of a name because... That implies that it's just the part that covers Siberia, but really it also might be the part that covered Europe if you want to define it that way. So yeah, dinosaurs in Europe were very much isolated from those in Asia, at least for part of the Cretaceous. Right. And then, like we were saying in one of our dinosaurs, we think there were periodic land bridges and things mm -hmm. when sea level dropped and then they could intermix a little bit and diversify. And then... As soon as it was possible, they did it. Yep. <laughs> then they get isolated again and evolve. Yep. Wait until their next opportunity to move. And that wraps up this episode of Vino Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe in your favorite podcast app to us so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And join our community, patreon.com slash Thanks again and until next time. Good day.